Well, hey there. My name is Pastor Tim, and you have found my podcast. I currently serve as the pastor of First United Methodist Church of Fort Pierce, Florida, and I'm so grateful to be able to connect with you in this way. This podcast is a collection of my sermons and teachings that I hope you will use to deepen and strengthen your connection with Jesus Christ so that you might go and transform the world around you. So kick back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode. So uh, I watch a lot of um, firefighter shows on TV, and my wife hates it, but I like it, right? But what our friends at the St. Lucie County uh, Fire Department have illuminated us to the fact of is that these shows don't accurately represent the day-to-day life of a firefighter. It's all the extra drama, right? (laughs) But definitely, uh, the people who write these shows, they, they do do some homework regarding firefighting. So there's some aspects of the show that is still true to life, or at least I choose to believe that, right? <laughs> and one of those aspects is the fact that uh, a structural fire creates a lot of pressure with inside of the building as, as oxygen is consumed and, and heat and smoke begin to fill the space. This is particularly true now as our modern building codes and building styles are built around creating a lot of insulation and sealant to keep, you know, like critters out and air conditioning in, right? It creates a lot uh, uh, of difficulty for heat and smoke from a fire to escape, which adds to the building pressure within inside of a building, which you might think to yourself, well... That's good, right? Because it it naturally contains the fire. Well, yes and no. I mean, it's good news for your neighbors, but it's not really good news for your friendly neighborhood firefighter. You see, as the the pressure builds, the fire becomes hotter. And, And fire, by nature, wants to move from an area of high pressure inside of the building to an area of lower pressure outside. So this means that when a fire truck pulls up to the fire that's been burning and smoldering for a while, they can't just kick in the front door to save you and your kitten. They run the risk of causing an explosion as they introduce low pressure and oxygen through the front door. So often what they'll do is they'll, they'll find a place to cut a hole or smash a window, which is uh, at a part of the structure that's far away from where they're trying to actively make access. This allows the fire to to naturally push out in that direction, and they can safely move in and get into position to put out the fire and also search for anyone or anything that's trapped inside. Now, I tell you all of this because the idea of a suffocating and high-pressure fire is important to uh, our journey through the book of Acts. So you may know that we are in the middle of a sermon series called how to start a fire. And what we're looking at is that the elements that the early church had that enabled the message of Jesus and, and the gospel of the kingdom of God to spread across the known world like a wildfire. And so today we're going to look at how Jerusalem, 
the holy city became like a structure fire, much like a common house or, or factory or office building fire, and, and how the community of faith grew and how the pressure built around it. You see, much like a common house or factory or structure fire of any type, the fire of the early church was beginning to burn really hot. People were coming to faith from all over the world and all walks of life. And we're going to find out that even some of the priests of the temple were beginning to believe in Jesus and join this new community. And that, as has been the story all along in each step of the way, did not sit well with certain people, particularly the religious elites. And there was this very real tension between the Jewish community and these new Jesus-following people. See, to, to the Jews, these people that were claiming that Jesus was the Messiah, the Savior of the world, they were heretics. They were preaching and teaching in the eyes of the temple, contrary to the scriptures. And just take a moment to take that in, because we live in this space right now, right? The, the political climate of America is a pressure cooker, am I right? But politics aside, even within Christianity, there are very deep divides. And it's strange because we all read the same Bible but we often have very different conclusions and different interpretations of it. And that's to be expected because we're reading something written thousands of years ago in an ancient language and trying to figure out what does that mean for us today? How does that instruct us on how we are called to live? There's a large margin for interpretation, and honestly, there's a margin for error as well. And so on our best days as people who follow Jesus, the great counselor and mediator, we give one another grace because of this reality. And on our worst days, we fight. And we fight bitterly. And we cause harm to one another. And we cause harm to the church. And that's just not the kind of people that Jesus came to create us to be. Is it? But back to the book of Acts. Here's the setup. And you can take heart in this because even the new Jesus community has a bit of pressure building up within inside of it. You see, Greek or non-Jewish origin Christians noticed that as they joined this community of faith, that some of their widows or orphans were not being cared for as well as the widows and the orphans who had a Jewish lineage. And so the, the apostles, they got together and they decided, you know what, we need to appoint some professionals to oversee the community. There, there's just too many people. It's growing too quickly. There's only 12 of us. We have all this preaching, teaching, and healing to do out in the community. We can't be the ones who are constantly hovering over and making sure everything is being done the way Jesus would do it. These are still human beings, right? They're, they're following Jesus, but they're still not very good at it. 2,000 years later, same story, right? Okay? 
So take heart. Just know that this legacy that we live started a long time ago. And so what the apostles decide to do is they're like, we need to uh, appoint some people who are going to be like professional caretakers, who are going to oversee the well-being and the distribution of goods and services within our new community. And so what they do is they, they find seven people, a very holy number, seven people, and they, they give them a title, servants or deacons. Now, deacon comes from the, the Greek word, which is translated for us, to serve. And we still have deacons in the church today. And in some traditions, like uh, Baptist churches and other congregational types of churches, they have a board of deacons who do like a lot of the hands-on care type of work of the church. Here in the United Methodist Church, we don't call necessarily those folks deacons. We just call them Mary Whedon or Liz Tracy in the congregational care team, right? So while not given the title, the, the idea is the same. But in the United Methodist Church, which we are a part of, deacons are an order of clergy. They sometimes work in the church, but often they work in other areas of the world, and, and their calling is to connect the world to the church, among other things. And so they minister in contexts where they, they provide care to vulnerable populations who might not ever walk inside the doors of a church. So I got, I got a picture here for you. Uh, in this picture that's coming up, no, we don't have it. Well, I, uh, there was a picture in the other service. It was more high-tech than this service. <laughs> it's a picture uh, of me and my, my very best friends. They're uh, my, my covenant group, and we gather together, and we um, just do life together. And uh, there's, there's three of us who are elders who work in the local church. Uh, my friends Sarah and Kip are pastors like me. But there are uh, four others of us who are deacons. Uh, I have a friend named Rachel, and she is the, the chaplain and uh, the faith services coordinator at Wesleyan College in Macon, Georgia. I have another friend. Her name is Carrie, and she is a discipleship pastor at a church over in Clearwater. But uh, in July, she's going to transition into a role within a, a faith-based community action organization. I have another friend named Anna who works in juvenile palliative care with teenagers who have chronic illness. She basically plays video games all day. But... <laughs> and then I have another friend named Paige, and Paige is the director and the pastor for the, the Wesley Foundation at Auburn University. She ministers to college students and all of the messes that college students bring to their own lives, right? They do very hard work. Deacons are my heroes. Like, this, this is easy, right? This part, no sweat. Dealing with the mess of the world, that's the hard part. And all the theology that I practice and that I preach about how the world outside of the church matters, that all comes from the fact that I sit with these people and hear about the world from them firsthand. They remind me of what the church is here for. And that's the people that the apostles needed to care for this community. 
the people that the apostles needed to connect the world to this new blossoming church. And so, so back to the book of Acts. These seven deacons are commissioned by the apostles, and one of them is a man named Stephen. And Stephen's an incredible minister for the gospel, and because he's so good at what he does, he almost immediately gets into trouble with the law because the pressure wasn't just inside the church, right? That was just a little bit of it. The pressure is really in Jerusalem still. And so Stephen is out. He's doing his thing. He's healing and he's teaching. And and some people claim that he is teaching blasphemy, that he is a heretic. And so they they gather him up and they bring him before the scribes and the priests and they, they question him about his teaching. They say, what have you to say about yourself? Because what they're saying is that you are teaching against the customs of Moses, against the foundation of our religion. They are saying that, that you are throwing the teaching of God away and replacing it with something new. And so what Stephen does is he preaches a really long sermon at them. It's what we do, right? And so Stephen preaches this sermon at them that shows the leaders of Israel how they are the ones who threw away the teaching of Moses at nearly every single point in the history of Israel. How every single time that they threw the teachings of Moses away, someone, a prophet or someone else, came to call their attention to this fact. And what happened was the establishment had them killed. He says, you're the ones who received the law, but you're the ones who haven't been able to keep it. And you, you accuse me? Come on now. You wouldn't know the law of Moses if it hits you in the face. And so you can imagine, uh, you know, just how well that went over with these folks that he's talking to. But I won't make you imagine it. I'll just read it to you, right? So this is Acts chapter 7 starting in verse 54. It says, When they heard these things, they became enraged and ground their teeth at Stephen. But filled with the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they covered their ears, and with a loud shout, all rushed together against him. Then they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. So while they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he died. So, you know, when we look at this, like Stephen literally just preached at these people about how they always kill the prophet who's calling them back to God. And the response is to bring him out to be stoned, killed in just the same way as these people whom he just spoke to them about. They bring him out 
and turn him over to a mob, just like they did with Jesus of Nazareth. And Stephen's response, he doesn't say, this isn't fair, you can't do this to me. He doesn't say, you're going to get yours. No, he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Do not hold this sin against them. It sounds exactly like the words of Jesus from the cross, does it not? Jesus said, into my hands I commend, into your hands I commend my spirit. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. But the important thing to note is the difference here between the crowd from, from when Jesus was crucified to now the death of Stephen, the first martyr of the church. You see, when, when Jesus was crucified, the religious leaders knew that they did not have the authority to have him killed. So they appealed to a higher authority, not the right higher authority, but a higher authority nonetheless, to the Roman government. They had him officially charged by Rome and sentenced to death by a Roman governor named Pontius Pilate, someone who had the authority to dole out the death sentence. They knew that they had a specific role in society at this particular point in time and deciding if someone lived or died was not in keeping with that role. But what they hoped to accomplish, the death of the Jesus movement with the death of Jesus did not take place. And so as the Jesus movement grew and flourished, the pressure built, and now just a short period of time later, the scene in Jerusalem has changed. See, months before, the scene in Jerusalem, although violent, stayed within the rule of law. Jesus' life was taken lawfully by the proper authorities. It wasn't taken morally, but it was taken lawfully. Stephen's life, however, is taken by a mob, by like some type of vigilante justice. And that's who's responsible for the first Christian martyr. See, as the pressure inside of Jerusalem builds, the people who are opposed to the Jesus community are unwilling to submit themselves to the authority of Rome to dispense the death penalty. They instead turn their allegiance over to this Pharisee a man by the name of Saul of Tarsus, and they take matters into their own hands. And the story goes on. It says, and Saul, well, Saul approved of their killing him. And that day, a severe persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the countryside of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church by entering house after house, dragging off both men and women, and he committed them to prison. And so this man, Saul, becomes the leader of the Inquisition against the Christian community. It's unlawful, but he doesn't care. He's, he's consumed with hatred towards Jesus' followers, and, and so he's going house to house, seeking to put out the fire that has been raging within Jerusalem. And I can't help but think it must have felt hopeless for the Jesus community. Like, like this must be the end. But focus and remember 
this important detail. The result of this persecution is the scattering of Jesus' followers across Judea and Samaria. And remember what Jesus had said to the apostles, what was promised to them in Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, ding, 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 and to the ends of the earth. And that's where the story ends for today. The fire that began in Jerusalem was never meant to stay in Jerusalem. It's created so much pressure that, it's, that Jerusalem is bursting at the seams. And what we're going to find is that even though the leaders were hoping to quench this fire, when they started kicking in doors, the fire merely escaped to an area of lower pressure and was emboldened. See, the martyrdom of Stephen didn't put out the fire. It only made it rage harder and wider. Now, our society is widely pressurized. It really doesn't matter anymore what you believe. There's someone out there on Facebook who's going to persecute you over that belief. We've widely lost the ability to be objective and loving and have discourse over things. Instead, we take up the mantle of Saul in the crowds, and we tear people down who disagree with us. And it's about time that we, as the church, stop modeling and allowing this type of behavior, because we're better than that. We were created better than that. We were called to be better than that, because we appeal to and recognize a higher authority. We appeal to King Jesus, who sits on the throne. We recognize that we aren't the judge, the jury, and the executioner. And quite frankly, we have enough of that coming at us from the outside anyway. The reality in all of this is that it's hard enough to follow Jesus in this world without having to deal with conflicts amongst ourselves. You know, we're not always looked on with loving gazes from the outside. We're often, like Stephen, the, the brunt of false accusations and misunderstandings, and, and that's just a fact of life. It's just the way that it is for people like us who submit ourselves to Jesus and claim Jesus to be a higher authority than the culture of our times. It's reality for people like us who live in the shadow of an institution who has not always been on the right side of history. And our response when we face this type of persecution, as it's often called, or really this type of pressure from the outside, is not to model the common response of culture, outrage. Our response, however hard it truly is, needs to look more like the response of Stephen. Stephen, who, while actively being persecuted, looked to heaven and appealed to God for forgiveness for those who were actively taking his life. And this is not an easy task. Imagine the kind of humility and the kind of love that it takes to act in such a way. To be willing to, to lay it all out on the line to give one's life up for Jesus and not be spiteful in the moment towards those who are taking it. It's not natural 
It's, well, it's supernatural. It's the kind of attitude that we can only be afforded through the power of the Spirit of God. And I believe that this is what really sets us apart. This is what truly makes the community of Jesus' followers unlike any other community in the world. It's our ability to set ourselves aside and to meet one another and to meet with the world in spaces of grace. To come to the table together and say, listen, I disagree with you, but I'm not mad about it. Or, hey, this thing that you have done has caused harm to me, has caused harm to us, or has has caused harm to people who I love deeply. But I don't want to hurt you back. I want to see restoration come from it. Because Jesus' hardest command to us is to forgive those who hurt us. To turn the other cheek and to love our enemies means that we must tap into a different kind of power than we are capable of creating within ourselves on our own. That power is what Stephen harnessed as he looked upwards at the faith of Jesus on the throne. And so what if you took a moment in your suffering in your anger, to really take a look towards Jesus rather than at the one whom you'd like to lash out at and hurt? What if in a pressurized and heated environment you focused on peacefully moving towards a place of lower pressure? How would your life look different? How would your relationships look different? How would you feel meaningful tangible change in your relationship to the world if your eyes were focused on the giver of grace and love and peace in the midst of moments of high pressure and anger and how might that empower you to be the peace that this world so desperately needs let's pray together God, we love you and we thank you for the gift of your spirit in us. We thank you for the witness of those who have run this race that we run, the the Stevens of this world, who have just lived in, in deeply divided, deeply persecuted, deeply painful times and have shown us that there's a better way of navigating it than anger and violence. God, help us to embody that peace. Help us to to allow the the spirit that you have given to each of us to, to guide us in the midst of these times that we live in and just the, the reality that living in this world is, is hard. People fail us, we fail ourselves. We fail others. So God, just show us how you are calling us to be agents of your peace and of your grace. Show us how to make meaningful and positive change in this world through the gift of your grace flowing through us. God, show us 
how to be these people, these followers of Jesus who change this world and change our communities. God, we love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.